Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. We have on our menu for your selection today, uh, ins and outs at Arsenal, also outs possibly at Manchester United, the continuing medical round which is Tottenham Hotspur's transfer policy over this particular window, as well as the fallout of Newcastle United's failed takeover bid by the Saudi Arabian Private Investment Fund, as well as a little bit of Liverpool and indeed what Jurgen Klopp has had to say regarding the upcoming title race. And of course, we have the Donkey Award, always a highlight of the week. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me, of course, is the said donkey, Duncan Castles, our transfer guru. And we start today with news on Arsenal. Uh, much conjecture uh, over this particular window regarding the futures of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, as well as, of course, Alexandra Lacazette. It's her information, and we did report this on the podcast uh, a week ago, that uh, there is a interest from Arsenal in Odson Eduard, the France international striker, currently at Celtic, uh, a player who has been monitored by Arsenal for some time, 28 goals uh, in the previous season, a player who has not featured very greatly, uh, interestingly enough, so far in the current campaign for Celtic. Um, Duncan, it's our information that the initial uh, offer from Arsenal was £15 million, which was rejected by Celtic. That offer has since been increased to £20 million, with add-ons up to the value of another £2.5 However, the payment would be staged uh, over four years, something which, of course, uh, we saw last season with um, the transfer of Kieran Tierney to the Emirates, uh, Celtic would prefer to have a much bigger payment up front. However, I understand you have information with regards to Lacazette and a potential move away from Arsenal, which would, of course, pave the way for Edward to move to the Gunners. Yeah, look, we know Arsenal's finances are very tight. Um, we've just heard Vinay Venkatesham talk about how they have to justify investing in the squad in this window a period after they've sacked staff and uh, reduced wages and saying it's like a company investing in machinery. They can't stop investing in machinery because they're in an economic downturn. It's important for the future of the business. Um, As you say, stage payments is something Arsenal have used before. They they very much used it on the the transfer of Nicola Pepe last summer from Lille. Um, that those um, 80 million euro fee being broken down over four uh, years in, in that case. Um, so it makes sense that their, their offer to Celtic involves stage payments and understand that at present that is a verbal offer of 20 million plus 2.5 million. They haven't formalised it yet. What we might see them doing is them formalising it if Alexander Lacazette's discussions over a move out of Arsenal progress as he hopes. Um, I can tell you he has been in uh, negotiations with both Atletico and Juventus over a transfer away from Arsenal. Um, 
The asking price, I understand, at the moment is 40 million euros um, for a player who has two years left of contract and is 29 years of age. He has, um, he has a good record in the Premier League for Arsenal, even though he's never properly nailed down that starting slot, I think, because of Obama Young's presence in the squad. But he has 37 and 97 Premier League games, um, a good record and goals per minute in the Premier League as well. So you can see the attraction for clubs of Atletico and Juventus's status. Um, we know Juventus won a starting striker and have looked at a number of options. We told you that Raul Jimenez was high up their list, but um, essentially too expensive for them because Wolves refusing to compromise on on pricing. Um, I think the Juventus were floating the idea of signing him for around 60 million euros and, and Wolves' argument was that they effectively had paid that much for him in their what was previously the record transfer fee before they, they took Fabio Silva from FC Porto this month at 40 million euros and the wages they'd given him. So Juventus have had to look elsewhere. Atletico um, have their own financial problems to juggle. We told you in the last podcast how they have a deal in place to sign Mark Rocca from Espanyol for 15 million euros um, and far lower wages than would be involved in taking Lacazette. But that La Liga has put that on hold until they have uh, readjusted their outgoings to make space for Rocca to come in. So that, that would be uh, a complication in Lacazette. Um, but uh, they also have the, uh, the, a player at Atletico that Arsenal very much want in Thomas Partey, um, who has a set release clause, who is open to moving to the Premier League um, and whom Arsenal have been trying to get for less than his release clause and Atletico have held on to so far. So scope for negotiation there. And you see the pieces falling into place. Um, you see Arsenal um, looking for the replacement for Lacazette. Edouard would be significantly cheaper in terms of wages. Younger, um, Obama Yang would be you know, absolutely confirmed as the main striker. He's been given a new contract. Uh, the new contract is agreed and should be announced soon, um, which will take him to 2023, increase his wages and cement him as the most important player at the club and as the captain. Um, and having the faith in him from uh, an individual who's been promoted from head coach to first team manager this week, Mikel Arteta, um, in the latest uh, set of changes and what's turning into quite a radical overhaul from Arsenal this summer. Interesting, Duncan. Uh, yes, that um, in a time and at the same time, as you said, uh, the club have made statements regarding how difficult it's been for them to um, make employees redundant as well as lose people. Um, I saw the CEO say that uh, most of these people live within 30 miles of uh, the training ground or indeed um, the Emirates Stadium. And so promoting Arteta has, to my understanding, included not a pay rise as such, uh, which, of course, anyone in the position would be expected uh, to receive, but instead a bonus-related uh, payment on achievements uh, on the back of, obviously, the FA Cup win and Community Shield victory as well. Um, 
worth, I think, bringing up as well at this point, because uh, you first told us um, several months ago that Arsenal um, were hoping to um, develop Hector Bellerin into uh, the kind of elite international right back which he has become uh, and then sell him for a huge profit. Now, that seems to be actually maybe uh, a realistic prospect now because there is interest in him, certainly from Paris Saint-Germain and uh, some other clubs in Spain as well. Uh, maybe that's something which will help fund Arteta's rebuilding in terms of Arsenal for next season. Yeah, it's actually a story we did in the podcast last summer um, when uh, we told you that Arsenal were in the market for a new, uh, younger right-back who they could develop alongside Bellerin last season. Um, Bellerin at that point coming back from injury, so they, they, they wanted him to get back into the first team, recover from his ACL, re-establish himself as a top um, right back in European football with the view to selling him this summer at profit and promoting um, the, his replacement into the first team. And yes, um, it, there does seem to be that movement there from Paris Saint-Germain, um, one option for him, um, long-standing interest in him from Barcelona. Um, and again, I think you see a more strategic um, operation to Arsenal here. Um, the with a focus on a lot of younger players coming in over the last uh, season or so with Kieran Tierney, who they were prepared to take with injury issues uh, and who has shown his qualities the, the longer he's been there at Arsenal. You have William Saliba coming in from uh, France, who they signed last summer and left at his, uh, his parent club for a year in order to uh, facilitate that deal. Um, shifting players out where they can make money, reducing wages in certain areas of the team by trying to sell players like Lacazette, um, building around Arteta's strategy uh, for the squad. Um, it's, it's quite different from where they were in the last years of the Wenger regime when they were throwing money at players like Aubameyang, Lacazette, uh, Mesut Ozil, and what seemed to be a sort of last throw of the dice to try and get Wenger to win a Premier League title before uh, before he left the club. Um, it does look more organised now. What we need to see is whether what Venkateshwam said about uh, Edu and Arteta um, following the promotion of Arteta and specifying that Arteta would be much more involved in football operations such as analysis, recruitment, um, areas which had been Edu's um, domain previously, saying that there was a special chemistry between Edu and Arteta and they would be two minds thinking together. Um, if, it, if that is correct, if it does work in that way, then um, yeah, Arsenal look like they're in a better place than they have been for some time. Yeah, it's certainly very interesting in terms of, um, as you said, the strategy um, seems to be... Uh, replicating in an infant way so far the one of Liverpool where they identify targets um, way in advance and then make their move and ensure that they secure them. Uh, the U-turn on these Ainsley Maitland-Niles in terms of 
the widespread uh, identification that he may be um, on surplus requirements at the club as well. But after um, impressive performances in pre-season, may well be the person to fill Bellerin's boots should indeed they decide to sell. We've had a lot, Duncan, as you know, of traffic on our social media platforms with regards to, uh, well, I, th- I could summarise it by saying quite simply, what the hell's happening with Manchester United? Because they don't seem to be signing anyone and they don't seem to be going forward with regards to their recruitment. But you have information for us regarding potentially a couple of exits from the club, which in turn, of course, as we know, may well fund recruitment as well. Yeah, look, there are a lot of people saying, why have we only signed one footballer when Chelsea have spent um, on, in heading towards 200 million? Uh, Manchester City have already bought two players for significant fees and were prepared to put down a record um, financial package to bring Lionel Messi to the club and were only um, stymied in that by Messi's decision that he wasn't prepared to go to court with Barcelona. Um we did tell you in the last podcast, which uh, received a lot of attention and, and um, sort of, I think, changed the reporting around the Jadon Sancho situation, that, uh, that they were um, very confident in their position there and uh, there were reasons why the deal hadn't been completed uh, to do with bonus clauses in Sancho's contract. So um, there is a, certainly a confidence at United that they will get that deal done eventually and I think that will change the picture of um, Manchester United's recruitment in terms of incomings if they get the player that they had identified as their top target from the very beginning and were prepared to put the majority of their transfer budget into. Um, they do have to move players out and um, it's interesting to see what's happening with two guys who've, who've dropped well down the pecking order in that uh, very heavily staffed defensive uh, section of the of the Manchester United squad. Um, one of them, Diogo Dalo, um, the young Portuguese under twenty one international uh, right back, um, who has essentially been relegated to third choice right back in the planning Solskjaer is making for the coming season. Juan Basaka obviously has that position nailed down. We told you some time ago that Manchester United were in the market for another fullback, that they were prepared to sign either a left back or a right back, preference being for a left back. But if um, they, the, the player was of sufficient quality um, of the options available to them, they would take a right back, a, a younger one on that side. If they take a left back, the idea is to move Brandon Williams from backup to Luke Shaw into backup for Aaron Wang-Bissaka and, and allow him to develop over there. And that tells you where Dalo is. Um, I can tell you that Dalo is not happy with his situation at United and is keen to leave. Um, however, he doesn't have permission from the club to leave. Uh, you would think a loan deal would be um, a viable solution here, a loan with, a, with an option to buy in a year's time, allow a player who was extremely highly rated when he came to the club um, picked out of Porto with a, a limited amount of experience for the team, but picked out because of the quality of his performances at Porto. Um, came with an injury, so struggled in the, in his first half season, 
under Jose Mourinho because he simply couldn't play him. Um, and has actually played very few games in total in his professional career. However, what Manchester United are asking for in uh, this market, and they've had inquiries from clubs such as Lille um, to take the player, which should be a sign of, of Dalot's qualities because Lille are excellent recruiters, uh, obviously have a Portuguese and in charge of the recruitment policy and someone who has a habit of picking up uh, young talents who've, who've gone off the rails or been sent off the rails at the clubs they're at and turning them into top players. Told that the the when Lille inquired for the player, Manchester United told him we will sell him, but only for the money we bought him for, which is 22 million euros, which is, I think, completely unrealistic in the, the current market, given how little football he's played and given where his status at Manchester United. Um, understand that Leo were prepared to take the player and leave uh, United with a with a big sell on on his next transfer. So offering a carrot of well, we can't spend twenty two million, but if you set up the deal where you retain a percentage of his sell on, you will get your money back down the line if all if all goes well um, with his time in France. But United rejected that. See what happens over the next few weeks because they have a player who wants to leave and they have a, an unrealistic asking price and they have a intent to buy another fullback and if he comes in then Dalot will be even more surplus to requirements than he had than he has been and will I think be a problem for Solskjaer to handle. Um, another player that they're trying to move out, Marcus Rojo. Um, how many times have you heard that sentence uh, when talking about Manchester United's transfer plans? Um, one year left on his contract, a contract that pays him eight million uh, pounds gross per season. Um, has only played 17 league games in total in his last three seasons, went out to Estudiantes in Argentina in an effort to get some playing time, um, which was stopped by COVID stopping the Argentinian league. Um, told the asking price for Rojo is 8 million euros, um, which again, I think is not going to be an easy one to achieve given how high his wages are. And given how few games he's played and given the market they're trying to sell him into, um, most likely destination, Italy. Why? Because Italy have tax breaks on salaries for uh, players arriving from overseas. Um, and I think there could be an interest there from Napoli who have been interested in signing him in the past. And as we've told you, are in the market for a centre-back to replace Kaladu Koulibaly who they're trying to get the maximum fee out of Manchester City for um, and who are very open in their intention uh, to sell this summer. So some very quick updates for all of you guys, because you know that we have been progressively reporting on the big deals uh, over this summer window. And that is that uh, Manchester City are confident of seeing uh, the Koulibaly transfer. Um, however, uh, there are still some details to be ironed out and uh, expect news on that from us in the next few days on the Transfer Under podcast. Uh, also, Duncan obviously mentioned Jaden Sancho and uh, we did update you guys on the uh, clauses in his contract which were waiting to be fulfilled in order that he received bonuses, but more importantly, uh, for the player, I suspect, 
that his um, representatives would be paid for uh, before um, a fee, etc., and a full transfer agreement would be reached. So again, hold tight. It's going to be white knuckles. It always is with the transfer window. And uh, we will give you all the information first, as we always try to do. Another update before we move on to um, the record deal for a championship player transferring to the Premier League is that uh, the goalkeeper, who um, Edouard Mendy, who um, Chelsea are trying to recruit, uh, a deal is agreed in principle, um, which would see Chelsea pay around €20 million Euros up front and €5 million Euros in add-ons. Uh, for the Senegal international goalkeeper. Again, uh, this is something which uh, is being currently negotiated, but uh, it's our information that Chelsea are confident that they will get that deal over the line. Duncan, one of the most intriguing moves of this window so far has to be that of the Brentford striker Ollie Watkins, a player who was outstanding in the Championship. Uh, last season and someone who I, I think has real potential in terms of Premier League football. He has agreed what is reported to be a £33 million move to Aston Villa, which I mentioned would be a record transfer fee for a Championship player moving to a Premier League club. Now, Watkins was subject of interest by, for several clubs including Brighton, West Ham, uh, to name but two. Villa, obviously, uh, have been the ones who have decided to plunge and pay the price that uh, Brentford wanted. But you have been told that there was also an offer from a very prestigious club as well. Yes, um, you flagged up on the on the podcast I think a couple of months ago now that Watkins um, would go for a lot of money in this transfer window to a Premier League club and you proved absolutely correct. Um, I think Brentford have uh, done a great job of marketing Watkins and uh, and playing off the interest of various clubs against each other to achieve that fee, which I understand is 28 million euros guaranteed with 5 million of performance-related variables. As you say, the most that's ever been paid for a championship player. Uh, to get that in a market affected by COVID, um, where the Premier League clubs know that the championship clubs are in particular difficulties um, and to do it quite a long time before the the, the window formally closes is um, is good work on uh, Brentford's part. Um, you're right, uh, there was interest, strong interest from West Brom in the player, obviously a player that they would have seen direct when coming up from the championship. Also strong interest from Fulham. Um, Leeds United were extremely keen on them, so you've got a cluster of championship clubs with um, money coming in suddenly from the Premier League trying to buy the player uh, and had been negotiating something before they decided to go for Rodrigo Moreno, the Spain international, former Bolton Wanderers, loanee um, for 20, 28 million euros plus 2 million euros um, from Valencia. 
But I'm told there was also an offer there from Tottenham Hotspur during this process. Um, Tottenham, I understand, uh, made a proposal of 20 million euros guaranteed plus 5 million in bonuses before dropping out because they felt that the price and the valuation had got too high um, for the 24-year-old who scored 45 goals in 132 games for Brentford. But I think it's a positive sign for Tottenham supporters that Daniel Levy is prepared to sanction a fee of that amount for what would be a backup striker. Um, Watkins or whoever comes in is coming in as the uh, cover for Harry Kane after um, the difficulties that Tottenham suffered last season with Kane um, rupturing his hamstring in January. Uh, and no uh, experienced replacement being available for for Mourinho to use in the first team, a, a process which is which is uh, detailed, um, I think, very well in the, in the recent Amazon um, All or Nothing documentary on Tottenham, and you get some some very interesting uh, coverage of of Kane's reaction to that, of the coaching staff's reaction to that. Um, you even have Kane making jokes about. Uh, about uh, his value um, with, I think, uh, Christian Eriksen talking about how uh, one of his feet would be worth 100 million euros at one point and they're discussing uh, the the growth of the transfer market and Kane replying, and yeah, that was before I did my hammy, um, which has Eriksen and and Ben Davis laughing in in response. Um, But, you know, Mourinho went into this window being told that he would have to sell to buy um, players coming in would be free agents or uh, or players um, who could be uh, taken on a swap deal. Um, and now there's an offer of 20 million for a backup striker. So it seems Levy has decided that uh, the financial situation is such that he can afford to put a little bit more into the market. And... Um, probably also looking at what some of the other Premier League clubs, the direct competitors such as Chelsea are doing and uh, and realising that if he doesn't invest a bit in upgrading the squad, it's going to be tough for them to get the Champions League place he wants and um, and to get the trophy. He, he in this, that documentary, is talking about the importance of, of chasing on, on a couple of occasions. And of course, that documentary features a certain Duncan Castles uh, and the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, if any of you haven't heard that, uh, please refer to either the programme itself or indeed to our Twitter feed, which have start, they've started calling Duncan Hollywood Castles uh, after his appearance on the Amazon Prime documentary, which um, many of us find really quite amusing, it has to be said, because no one's less Hollywood than Duncan is. <laughs> he's, he's, he's more Hollywood than, than Hollywood, <laughs> it has to be said. Um, but you're, uh, I'm serious though, Duncan, it's true, um, because your information um, ahead of this window was that it would be uh, sell to buy and that Mourinho wouldn't have to you know, basically scale down any um, aspirations he had in terms of spending money in this window. But it seems to me that uh, Levy has found uh, his granny's biscuit tin somewhere in the uh, Tottenham boardroom 
with a few million quid in it and decided that actually it's worth you know, getting that out there and spending it, uh, as you said, to achieve um, that trophy uh, and Champions League spot that they so crave. And of course, Tottenham, um, as we have reported on the podcast uh, many times, is one of many clubs who effectively are for sale. And of course, nothing enhances your value like Champions League football or indeed being a winner. Now, Duncan, on the eve of the Premier League season, uh, resuming uh, on the weekend, uh, Jurgen Klopp, the manager of the Champions Liverpool, has been speaking, speaking in a very interesting way with regards to his club's defence of the trophy and also about the spending of his rivals such as Manchester City and Chelsea. Now, is this a a defensive mechanism from Klopp with regards to what Liverpool fans can expect in the coming season? Or do you think it's just a bit of self-defence for him in terms of Liverpool fans being frustrated by the fact that they have signed just one player uh, who's a backup left back, uh, effectively, uh, over this window so far. Yeah, look, the, the phrase he used was for some clubs, it seems to be less important how uncertain the future is. Owned by countries, owned by oligarchs, that's the truth. We are a different kind of club. Uh, it's a very Klopp like statement. Um, he, he seems to forget the context of the money that was spent to, to get his team to the Champions League and to get his team to win the Premier League. Um, Massive investment in wages and you only have to look at Liverpool's accounts over the last three seasons to see how much uh, they've inflated their wage bill in um, retaining their better players but adding some of the best players uh, in the world to their squad. He did have a record transfer fee for a centre-back sanction for him before Edward decided to, to blow that uh, some out of the water by buying the um, the super talent that is Harry Maguire um, to uh, compete with uh, Virgil van Dijk. Um, and, uh, and what was one of the two highest transfer fees for a goalkeeper in Alisson. So there has been significant spending there. Um, okay, Liverpool will say from a net, net spend perspective, it wasn't that great. But as we always point out on the podcast, it's about improving the quality of your squad. And if you're bringing uh, spending heavily on wages and um, transfer fees for top quality players, the squad gets better. And that's, that's the fundamental thing that's important to a manager is the, the overall quality of players he has to pick from superior. Um, I think... Yes, he is obviously not enjoying being asked about the transfer market and there is pressure from Liverpool supporters on his owners. We know that Klopp wants players in. Um, We know he tried extremely hard to get Timo Werner in and FSG said, no, we're not doing it at that price. We know he's trying to get Thiago Alcantara in from Bayern. And there is a debate over whether the price of um, over 30 million euros that Bayern are asking for a player who has one year left of contract and is close to going into his 30s is acceptable or not. And and interestingly, Klopp 
um, talked about how good a player Thiago was in recent interviews too. So I think he's he's defending his owners to a certain degree. Um, he is building in a level of um, excuse should the season not go as well as people expect, given how many points they won it by last season. Um, you, you know, I think any rational analyst, and we, we said this throughout the podcast, that the that margin of victory was deceptive. Um, if you look at the basics of their season, you look at the basic statistics of the, their season, they had a lot of decisions go in their favour and they, they won it so early that Manchester City effectively gave up by Christmas time. Um, you had Pep Guardiola talking about how the league was done before Christmas time, um, that he will know that it's going to be hard to retain the title. And it's certainly, he doesn't have the margin of, uh, of error that people think he has given last season's results. I think they, he's conscious that playing games behind closed doors is not great for Liverpool, who have had a bigger home advantage than any other Premier League team uh, in recent seasons. Um, and taking away that crowd probably is going to take away not just the you know the emotional intensity of the ground a place where pep guardiola describes as it makes opponents feel small but also that that pressure on officials to give marginal decisions in liverpool's favor which is very important to a team who are set up to play on the edge of the laws of the game in in their pressing and tackling and require um, referees to to give them the, the benefit of the doubt in those um, you know those moments when they go in hard on players and and it could easily be given a foul the other way to um, to have that margin of victory they had last season. But having said all of that, and, and you know this is kind of the spikiness about Klopp, and and I think you know there is a, a rationale here that he's um, that he taps into. He, he says it's it, you know it's not simply about bringing quality in. Um, you cannot bring in the best, the eleven best players in the world, and just hope a week later they play the best football they will ever play. It's about working together on the training ground, and that will probably be an advantage for us. And I, and I, I think that you, you cannot argue with that. It's not simply the case that you buy players and you automatically have success. And, and the integration period any top coach will tell you is important, which is why they want deals done as early in a window as possible. Um, and, and I think with Liverpool, it's particularly important because you see when they bring players in that generally they, they require quite a long adaptation period, getting used to Klopp's methods, getting them physically up to the level, exceptional levels that uh, Liverpool have had them at in the last two seasons and understanding where they have to be on the pitch and how they, they play that, that pressing game when they apply it to disturb opponents. So it's going to be fascinating to see what actually transpires once we start playing again um, and what, what the level of the Liverpool team is going to be in a context where Klopp would like to have more players, but still fighting his owners to get them, um, where two, at least two of um, his major opponents um, 
are have already invested heavily and plan to invest heavily still in the in the remaining uh, months of the window. So, how ironic! A ghost Anfield means no more ghost goals. That would be very um, <laughs> interesting to watch that pan out. Um, I that Liverpool could have gambled, Duncan. Um, on their success in the Champions League uh, the season before last. They didn't recruit um, heavily in any way. Uh, they did succeed in their mission to win that first title in 30 years. I'm going to put you in a spot because, you know, this is this the weekend of Premier League restarts. Do you think Liverpool retain the title? I don't know, and I'm not going to make any calls on who wins the titles until we see <laughs> until we see we t- see the end of the recruitment. Well, which part I, which part of put you on the spot didn't you get? I'm, I'm jumping <laughs> I'm jumping off the spot. Um, and onto the fence. I, look, I, I think it I think it's harder to call than any season. Um, not because of the teams involved, and not because of the margins of victory previously, but it's such unusual circumstances. Um, how do they train the players? I was talking to a top coach the other day and asking him how what he felt the implications of the short, uh, extremely short preseason would be, and um, and the condensed schedule. And, and he said, "Look, it depends how they handle their players in preseason." He thought that if they put them through something resembling a proper preseason, i.e., high intensity work. That would be extremely dangerous and would and would cause injuries going through the season and cause burnout through the season. He said that they got the players to a level where they could perform at the end of project restart. Um, if they were sensible, they'd keep them ticking over and keep them at that level in the in the preseason period and just go into games that way. But no guarantee that every club does that. So you've got unpredictability there. You've got a transfer window which, as we keep saying to you, is uh, the hardest one that most of these guys have ever worked in, trying to work out what other clubs are, are going to do, where prices are still very high, even though there's less money to spend, where Abu Dhabi are throwing um, their nation-state wealth at Manchester City's squad again, where Roman Abramovich has decided um, he wants to have another crack at the title and is backing Frank Lampard in a, in a huge fashion. Um, and where the window goes on quite deep into the season again. So let's let's wait till everyone has has um, made their purchases um, and see the first few weeks of the season and and make some calls and, and who we think will win it then. In all sort of um, you know practicality and realistic sense, I completely agree with you. I wouldn't be um, sort of staking any money of mine on uh, a sort of pre-season bet on who would win the title until I see who comes out of the traps and how they do. Uh, I agree as well uh, regarding the state of fitness of the players. Um, We've already seen um, clubs be disrupted uh, by COVID-19 positive tests. For instance, last night PSG lost their first game of the season despite starting late, um, but without... Mbappe and without Neymar uh, for that reason. And obviously we've had a few interesting um, incidents regarding players in the Premier League who have um, violated 
biosecure uh, circumstances in order to um, have social um, interactions, let's just say, with regards to um, uh, their particular choices. So um, I suspect, Duncan, that we will see more of that um, as the start of the season progresses. Nation State Clubs is an interesting subject because uh, we have now experienced uh, in the last 24 hours a huge um, disagreement between the Premier League and its chief executive, Richard Masters, and Newcastle United over the proposed takeover by um, PCP Partners and the Saudi Public Investment Fund, where uh, effectively um, the Premier League have called Newcastle United liars because they have claimed, since Newcastle United, that the Premier League turned it down on a failure of the fit and proper persons test in terms of the people involved in the proposed takeover. Duncan, this is a story we've covered extensively. Uh, listeners to the podcast who are Newcastle United fans and, of course, just fans of football have been intrigued and engrossed in this particular soap opera. I mean, what what's the fallout going to be now, given that you predicted, I think back, I think six weeks ago, if not more, that there was a potential legal action um, by Newcastle United against the Premier League, should they not clarify why it is that they did not approve the takeover? Um, where does it go from here? Yeah, well, it was June that we said that the possibility would be that Mike Ashley could um, take legal action against the Premier League if they didn't approve the takeover because the, the argument was that um, PIF should pass the owners and directors test, the individuals they were planning to put on the board, including the, the chief executive of PIF, would all pass the owners and directors test. And, and therefore, given the history of the Premier League, the way it had been applied in previous circumstances, that the, the takeover should go through. Um, as you say, a very interesting statement from Newcastle, um, particularly because it was factually inaccurate. So Newcastle United can confirm the Premier League has rejected the takeover bid made by PCP Capital Partners, Ruben Brothers, Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, based on its owners and directors test. Um, they go into uh, some of the detail as to why it was rejected, which was exactly as we reported it on the podcast after um, it fell through, except it wasn't actually rejected. It was, as we said in the podcast, refused to give a decision. Um, and Newcastle United highlighted the Premier League chief executive, Richard Masters, um, uh, by saying that they did not accept that he and the Premier League had acted appropriately in relation to this matter and will be considering all relevant options available to them, which is a you know, a clear threat of legal action. That was surprising. Then you get the formal response from the Premier League, which again is extremely unusual in these matters. Um, and the Premier League essentially saying it's wrong. Uh, the club's assertion that the Premier League has rejected the takeover is incorrect. Premier League board has on a number of occasions given its opinion about which entities it believes would have control over the club should the consortium proceed with the acquisition. That opinion is based on legal advice. This means the potential takeover could proceed 
to the next stage should the relevant entities provide all appropriate information. They would then be subject to a suitability assessment by the board. As an alternative, the board had repeatedly offered independent arbitration as a way forward since June. Um, so they're, they're saying what we detailed at the time is that they, they wanted more information on who would control the club. They wanted PIF um, nominated as a, as a director and, and then that would allow them to decide whether PIF and whether a, a, an entity that was a vehicle of the Saudi Arabian state was appropriate um, to run a Premier League football club. They didn't actually take a decision. Um, and that was one of the complaints from PCP was that the Premier League were refusing to take a decision and, uh, and they were not giving them a rejection which they would have been allowed to appeal against and take um, to uh, a legal level and try and force through the takeover. Interesting element to this is that my information is that PCP were completely unaware that Mike Ashley was going to release that statement on Wednesday, that Newcastle United were going to release the statement that they weren't consulted on it and that it caught them by surprise, which I think tells you, one, that there's a degree of separation now between PCP and this takeover process, which is probably not surprising, given that the main backers, um, PIF, who were going to take 80% of the equity, had publicly declared themselves out of the process, something that's extremely unusual for PIF to do, that, that formal statement they made um, several weeks ago now. So they've lost their major backers. Um, and it also tells you, I think that Mike Ashley is um, signaling his unhappiness with the Premier League and signaling to other potential buyers that he's still open to selling the club. And I think probably there's an element of public relations with the Newcastle United fans who are as ever getting frustrated with the lack of upward direction in their club um, to say this takeover, to make it absolutely clear that this takeover didn't fail because of him, that he wanted it to happen um, and lay the blame at uh, the organising body of the league. But it, it's... Uh, it's quite a high-risk strategy to go after the, the organisation that um, provides the majority of your club's income and certainly an unusual uh, move. Very robust response, as you said, Duncan, with regards to what the Premier League replied. Um, uh, effectively, they always or traditionally have always said that we are here to represent the stakeholders. Um, so we are just, if you like, the, the vehicle for which uh, administrates the Premier League. So to go after one of its own stakeholders like that in terms of the accusations or the rejection of accusations um, is an unusual move. Newcastle have, of course, made three signings in the past seven days, which, uh, Duncan, you mentioned the fans were getting frustrated by what they saw as a lack of progress in terms of the club's upward elevation. Um, those players are secured, but you have some news for us on a, another player that they are interested in. Um, yeah, a player they, they have been interested in, Bubakari Samari, the French under-21 international holding midfielder at Lille, um, player who they bid 
heavily for in the January window um, and were confident they could sign. And we actually saw Steve Bruce give a press conference after the deal had fallen through saying we had a plane booked to go and meet Sumari, but the boy changed his mind. He's only young and there's a lot of top clubs who have been linked with him. We told you in the podcast at the time that his agent had uh, complicated that deal and that um, there was an expectation that bigger clubs would uh, bid in the summer um, who would be more interesting to him to, to take his career on. There's been a report this week that Newcastle have offered a deal worth 35 million euros for um, Sumari, so that they've come back in and, and tried it around the level. They they had um, agreed a fee with Lille um, for the player in January. I'm told that there has been no new offer from Newcastle in this window. However, Sumari is um, a strong possibility uh, for AC Milan, who have been discussing a deal with Lille. Um, the proposal at the moment is for uh, a total fee of 25 million euros, which would include performance related variables and a significant sell on to Leo, um, around about 30% of a future sale would go to them. And uh, Leo are interested in that. They will try and get a higher bidder if they can find one. But at the moment, it looks like Milan are best placed to sign uh, Bubakari Sumari um, for their midfield this summer. And, and, you know, that I think is an indicator of how bits of the market are reducing in value. So Lille have been very clear that they wanted to sell Sumari. They, were, they would do it in January. They've talked about him being available and they were ready to let him go if the price was right this summer. That fee that Milan are close to agreeing with them is significantly down on what they were ready to sell them for in January. And uh, and you can be sure they've tried pretty hard to get a bigger fee for them in this window. So although you've got um, some areas where large transfer fees are being paid across the board, when the deals eventually get done, the prices are tending to come down. Well, news is coming to us, of course, all of the time because the window is open, which means the news is flying through it uh, as fast as we can process it. And Duncan, uh, you have also got an update on the potential future of Liverpool's Serbian midfielder, Marco Grujic. Yeah, Grujic, I mean, he hasn't played for Liverpool since the 2017-18 season. Been on loan um, at Cardiff City and then Hertha Berlin. Very successful loan period in the Bundesliga. Um, Hertha are interested in, in making the deal permanent, um, but there are some complications in there. They, they, they're quite well financed, but they do need to move uh, at least one player on before doing the deal, I'm told. There's, in, there's some interest from within the Premier League in the player, um, but you've got <laughs> something that Liverpool do on quite a frequent basis of trying to maximise their really maximise the revenue for players and and uh, and ask for fees that seem a bit unrealistic. Um, I'm told they're asking 
20 million euros as a transfer fee for Gruich, um, which in a COVID-affected market is substantial, uh, given what we've just talked about with Bubakari Sumari and the way his price has come down. Um, Sumari would be a, a far more desirable individual in the current market. Gruich, very talented player, 24-year-old, um, part of Serbia's 2018 World Cup squad. Um, but he hasn't uh, established himself at Champions League level in the way that Sumari has, um, or at domestic level, um, at one of the leading clubs in his country. But Liverpool seems are pushing for the 20 million because they think they can get 20 million from Hertha. Um, that may put other moves in jeopardy for the player. Um, he would be happy to stay at Liverpool um, if required, but he'd prefer to get playing time. What my understanding is Liverpool have told him that they, they don't necessarily want to move him out. They, they would um, like him to be in a squad or they wouldn't be upset if he was part of his, their squad. But obviously he's not going to be high um, on Klopp's agenda um, to play in what is um, you know, a fairly established midfield and one that Klopp is looking to improve by bringing Thiago in from Bayern. It has come to that time when we look to award the most prestigious trophy in football. It's not the World Cup. It's not the Champions League trophy. It is the donkey, of course. And this week, we have been inspired. Well, I say inspired, Duncan. We might have been, I don't know, petrified <laughs> by Manchester United's newly released third kit, which... Um, can only be said it takes its, um, I don't know, uh, it's just like a zebra, isn't it? But but not even a good zebra because the lines don't, <laughs> the lines aren't horizontal. Uh, so um, we have decided that this week's donkey, uh, we're going to be uh, awarding it to the worst kit in the history of football. Uh, we feel we've got some great contenders. I mean, obviously there are a lot of bad kits out there. And we thank you for all your suggestions that you sent with regards to this particular award, all of them which deserved to be mentioned, but only three of which, of course, we can actually have the nominations for, partly because the uh, deadlines on which we work to mean that I've got to have a golden envelope with the three nominations in it. So, I mean, you think we make this stuff as, up as we go along. We don't. It's very, very, very organised, I can assure you. So, here we go. I'm going to open the envelope. There we go. We're getting that. There we go. Sound effects. So, Duncan, this week's donkey, the nominations are, well, apart from Manchester United's new third kit, they, they are Manchester City's rhubarb and custard third kit that was a real eye-opener it has to be <laughs> said and for anyone who was a fan of 1970s um sweet treats in the uk you'll know exactly what we mean when we say rhubarb and custard actually thinking about that duncan i remember another sweet which um uh was it the 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 humbug which kind of resembles manchester united's new third kit I think the humbug was far more symmetrical than Manchester United's um, drunken zebra kit. And, and certainly with more taste. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> lots of you have um, got in touch to say that Arsenal's 
uh, quite ludicrous um, asymmetrical triangular uh, pretending to be the Alps in yellow um, awake it between 1991 and 93 with uh, the famous JVC sponsor on the front was one of your worst ever that you've seen. And of course, we could not, absolutely could not go without mentioning, not the kit, but the white Armani suits of Liverpool's infamous FA Cup final walkabout on the old Wembley turf. Uh, Duncan, I think this is one of the most difficult ones you've asked to be judged, but you know, it is your job, it's your award, so please tell us who you think is the outright winner. Um, of, of those, um, look, that, that Arsenal kit you mentioned, um, I think you said petrified, I think nauseated is the, is the, <laughs> the word we're looking for here. That, that one, the closer you look at it, the, the more vomit-inducing it is, so that, that is a strong candidate. Um, we have our, our friend from um, Today FM in Ireland, Dave Moore, who, yes. who ran a poll on this. Um, a World Cup of ugly kits on Instagram. And he said that uh, 300,000 votes, Norwich home 1992-93, um, which is sort of... Oh, that was the yellow and green one, wasn't it? Yellow-green yellow, green and white Jackson Pollock type design. It was a sort of which... vomitarium <laughs> of kits. Yeah. Um, I, funnily enough, I actually quite like that one. <laughs> I, think, I think it's because it reminds me of the of the kit that Dundee United won the Scottish Cup in for the first time. Um, famous Lockie Jackson Pollock away shirt. Um, it was played that season, not in the final, but uh, the, I think it, that's why that Norwich one appeals to me. Um, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna vote for either of those. Um, yeah, those suits for the Liverpool. Um, were disgusting, but uh, not on the same level as that Manchester United third kit, which it, it's been a very bad week for Manchester, because if you look at what the Manchester City third kit that's been announced, which is in a colour called, um, I believe, Whisper White and Peacoat, and is covered with... <laughs> Jesus! A kind of biological, <laughs> biological paisley pattern. Um, Look, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to see Manchester United, Manchester City playing each other in the two kits that that Adidas and Puma have released, and um, I'm going to give it to Manchester United. And one of the reasons I'm going to give it to is that a listener pointed out that that away kit launch has generated a massive amount of social media attention, to which I have obviously contributed to, and they expected that. Ed Woodward, when he gives his next announcement on Manchester United's finances to investors, will cite the um, increase in social media activity around Manchester United this summer. He's done it time and time again, and that kit will probably contribute towards those numbers. So there is always method in the madness um, when you see what football clubs are doing these days. He does love a click, does our Ed, that's for sure. Um, and we look forward to reporting on those financial results, as we always uh, do, and bring you the analysis on that 
when they are released. Thanks, Duncan, for your Donkey Award this week, as always. Um, we hope you have enjoyed today's podcast and all the information and news that we've brought you. Um, if so, then please return the favour, because you're getting this for free. You know, it's uh, it's quite a thing. Uh, get on iTunes, please. Give us a five-star review. And as you know, uh, it means that we're easier to find, generally speaking. We're on all major podcast platforms, of course. We also have our YouTube channel where you can just search at Transfer Window Podcast and you will find us very easily. Apart from that, continue the debate. Over the weekend, Duncan and I are always available, as you know, and we engage with you. Um, and it's on at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I am at Garbo SJ uh, on Twitter. Uh, and we look forward uh, to hearing from you. Just leaves me to say, stay well, be safe, and thanks for listening. <laughs>